Hi, this is LGBTQ and A. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is a show where we get to know different members of the LGBTQ community. Today, I talked with Cameron Esposito. Cameron is a very funny comedian, and we talk about what it's like to create comedy in the Trump era. Also, Cameron is among the first crop of comics who were out of the closet when they got famous, as opposed to getting famous and then coming out of the closet. And I think it's worth highlighting and celebrating because that probably wasn't always possible before today. So we talk about that in the conversation as well as, you know, honoring the people who came before her that paved the way. It's a super interesting conversation. Now I'm about to hit play on the intro music. While that plays, please leave a comment and subscribe on iTunes. Specifically, leaving a comment is one of the biggest ways you can help our show to continue each week. And if you do leave a comment, please tweet at me and let me know. I'd love to say thank you. All right, let's do it. Cameron Esposito, welcome to the show. Oh, thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. Thank you for being here. So so you've been doing comedy for how many years? A lot of years. Well, I started when I was in college, so I was 19. I'm 35 now, so what is that? That's Um, that's, that's 16 years. 16. Okay, I I, I ask because I wonder, or I assume, it has to feel different doing comedy now in this political climate, right? You know what? I've been here in LA writing and working on a TV show for the last two years, and so like, how we are doing in this city, I don't think is representative of how everybody is doing nationally and then internationally because of the idiot hotel salesman slash Thai aficionado who lives in the White House half the time. So like, I'm very curious. We're going out on tour. My wife and I are just about to leave. I was telling you in like a day to go out on tour. That'll be my first time really like being elsewhere. Yes. What do you think it's like out there from, from social media? I have deduced that people are freaking out. <laughs> well, I mean, I have no idea because in my social media bubble, it's all LA, New York. And oh, it's really? all liberals. I know that you don't comment on political events like as as your entire set, but I just think of like how can you not be like consumed by it? Yeah, I don't think you I don't think you should avoid it. I mean, to be apolitical right now and be an artist is kind of a waste of time. You're just then propaganda because this is so un well i mean at least in my lifetime in our lifetime this is this has no precedent and so i just think we we have to art has to freak out a little bit i think maybe everybody else should try to stay normalized and like go to their jobs if they can but my job is to speak about the things that are unfair and awful and what's going on take them down yeah i just think that everybody is like for me personally, I, I trust strangers a little bit less, mm. if that makes sense. I think of it as being poked. Like, if I were to poke you twice, you would be annoyed. But if I were to poke you seven times, you'd, like, swap my hand away. And by the eighth time, you'd maybe, like, punch me or threaten to. And I feel like everyone's on, like, the seventh punch. Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't think that we are built to handle, like, this much devastating news. I just don't think it's, like, mentally... As humans, I don't think that's how we're supposed to live our lives. We can't function that way, right? Like, you have to look somebody in the eye and, like, hug a baby or whatever the things are that we're supposed to do, uh, have lunch with a friend. You have to do some of that. We're not really built to, 
like deal with the barrage that's coming from this administration. And that's actually a tactic that they're using. You know, they're using like, I mean, essentially we're, we're a ship and we're taking on water and they're trying to sink us. Yeah. And going off that, the, the barrage, I just think like, what is this doing to the collective mental health of people? You know, it's America's never been perfect for everybody. There's always been marginalized groups, but I feel like the collective population on the whole, we are rewriting and we rehardwiring brains. Absolutely. I mean, I don't know. My therapist, uh, when I went in right after the election, was talking to me about the guidelines that were being passed down from like whatever it is, the American Psychological Association or whatever it is, like whatever their sort of governing body was giving like guidelines for how to deal with this trauma, because it really is a trauma that we're all experiencing. I don't know what I've been talking to about with what I've been talking about my about with my therapist. Obviously, they can't like tell me what they talk about with other people, but I've been talking about feeling isolated. Do you feel isolated these days at all? I don't know if it's more or less. Okay. Um, I think that we probably as queer people are used to having to live a normal life with certain stresses. So maybe like we're better equipped to cope with it. Yeah, I think that might be true. I mean, I would also say, though, that, you know, when you don't know how everybody stands on this, like you're talking about, um, I mean, you're in public or you're in your family's unit or whatever. And I don't mean like queer, chosen family, cool, like rad hippie uh LA vibe I mean like the family that you were born into when you don't really know how everybody feels about these issues that to me feel so life and death I think that is an isolating experience yes when you put it that way absolutely so that's how I'm feeling so yeah. I've been talking to my therapist and, about that gotcha and I've also been trying to like plan to go out on the road and just hopefully get that human connection from all of these people and then also give that to all of these people, you know, because that's kind of what comedy can do and you can bring, I mean, it's church comedy is stand up as church. It's the same thing. You just, you know, a group of people together and you like ag- decide what you agree on and it's about, you know, whatever there's alcohol there. Stand up comedy is church where you don't have to go to hell. I wish we were talking after your tour <laughs> because I think about the LGBTQ experience as being so vastly different depending on where you are in the country. And I'm excited to see like what you're seeing across the country. Yeah, I mean, I think that's true and not true only because so the my comedy career has really mirrored and tracked with the LGBT civil rights movement, especially if you use like marriage equality as sort of a bookend. So the week that I got my first job, I graduated from college. The next day I got my first job professionally doing, doing comedy. And then the end of that week is when Massachusetts, where I lived at the time, legalized same-sex marriage. So like I went from, I went, I was at a conservative Catholic college where I couldn't come out to like, now I don't go to that college and I'm a professional comedian to, and also gay people can get married. That all happened in one week. And in the time since then, you know, I was touring during all of that nonsense where like, do you remember when like, it was like Kentucky would pass a bill where you couldn't get married. And then like the next day you can totally get married in Kentucky, but not Iowa or like what, you know, like whatever, however it all ping ponged along. I shouldn't slander Iowa. They were one of the first, but anyway, I was touring during all of that time. So I would like just go between states where we had rights and didn't have rights that still is true. I mean, there there are some states that we're traveling to where um, we have asked for gender-neutral bathrooms, and there are some states where that's actually illegal. It is illegal to give them. Yes. 
Doesn't that blow your mind? Because it's a really simple solution for anybody that would have, number one, there's no reason to have any fear there. There's no incident that anybody's basing that on. It's old men, like, sitting alone in a dark room imagining scenarios that do not exist, um, that do not reflect our community. But let's say if you were really scared, maybe an option is to have like a single, single use gender neutral bathroom. Then you don't have to worry. Right. But that would be too easy. Why solve the problem for everyone? Right. And that affects, you know, absolutely nobody having a gender neutral bathroom. Doesn't hurt. It doesn't hurt a soul. Oh man. I know. Thinking about your comedy and looking at the way you present your appearance, uh, you present queerly. That's not rude. <laughs> no, I, I'm into it. I would hope so, right? Yeah. I mean, there's been a lot written about your hair. Yeah, and now I have new hair. New hair. It looks really good. Thanks. It's so short. I'm, I'm, I think I'm going to go shorter. I, we'll see. I, I think you can pull it off. Have you got used to your new look yet? No, it's very stressful. <laughs> I also have... I like gave myself a little bit of a not contagious like eye infection traveling on a plane. So right now I have short hair and glasses, which is literally like never how I've looked one time in my life. You're in incognito. I am, I look like a totally different guy. Yes. How, how different guy? How long did you have the suit for? Like so long, but it it was a lot of different iterations. Like for at the very beginning, it was just kind of um, like a bob that was asymmetrical but sort of chin length, and then. The one side just kept getting longer. And then I had like a shaved on the side, you know, that thing. And then that sort of grew in. Um, and then I had like asymmetrical, um, but like almost a short haircut on the left side. And then I was wearing it up. So it was like a pompadour on the top with like a mullet on the side. <laughs> a lot of different iterations of the same silly. I think Otto Strato called it the last asymmetrical haircut has been cut. There's a lot of feelings about your hair. A lot of feelings uh, about my hair. Yeah, I bring it up though because because of the way you present and the things you talk about on stage, which is being queer. I assume you probably don't have to come out very often. Oh, that's interesting. Um, I mean, it kind of depends. I have to come out to friends or people that I meet through the entertainment industry. Like, probably not. Do I have to come in? Come out to like a bagel salesman sometimes like that's that's actually always the example that i use like you go into a bagel shop um just to talk about like the daily stress of coming out you go into a bagel shop you're like oh can i have can i get two of the poppy seed and then they're like oh you're bringing that for your boyfriend and then you're like oh like what do i do here do i just do i come out to the bagel the bagelier or do I just like let it go? Like, and then how do I come out? Like, actually, it's my girlfriend. It's my wife. You know, like, like, you know, do you know what I'm saying? It's the, sim- the simple stress of that. So I still have that thing, which I think a lot of queer people can relate to, which I, is just like that, t- those tiny moments. Yeah, I, I can't relate to that, actually, because in my experience, it's like they clock me being gay and it's just a given where, but it's for all my queer lady friends that they have to like continuously prove that they're being queer. They, they're the ones who, honestly with like the asymmetrical haircuts and the big like I'm gay t-shirts because they're so mad that people don't clock them. You know, I've never had, a, I've never had anybody say that to me before, a, a gay dude, but I believe you. And I think that's the other side of the coin. I do this podcast called Query. So I like, I'm having real conversations with people looking in their eyes for an hour that like I might know in the comedy world, but I'm not usually, we're not usually like staring into each other's faces and what I have often thought to be true is like, if you're a dude, if you're a young dude, you're labeled before you label yourself. So like people call you names or stuff you into the locker or like whatever. 
horrible things are happening to like queer dudes who might seem effeminate or might seem gay, whatever it is. And then for women, it's like none, we get none of that because like sportiness is, doesn't really indicate anything. You're allowed to have sleepovers with your best friend. You can kind of touch each other. There's like massages are fine. Like, like the number of things that it's kind of fine to do when you're a young woman, I don't think you're labeled at all. And so like when you're a young man, you're spending your whole life being like, please don't label me. And then when you're a young woman, you're like, could somebody just label me? And then it just continues for the rest of your life. Yeah. Because you could be a Tom girl and you still be straight. But there's not a male equivalent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we patrol. We, I mean, this is also, you know, I mean, this is the root of homophobia. This is the root of transphobia. We patrol what masculinity and maleness is. And let's, I I wish I had better words than masculinity and maleness, but I don't right now. Like stereotypical masculinity. We patrol it so much um, that like any deviation from that is disgusting because the worst thing that a man could be would be a woman, right? Like, that's the most disgusting thing. So that's why, like, people make jokes about penetrative gay sex because it's like, why would you want to be a woman? Um, and so, like, homophobia, transphobia all has roots in misogyny. If we just liked women a little bit more and if we just let dudes be themselves a little bit more, I really think we could massively reduce violence in this country. This is going to be, like, so serious. Are you ready for how serious that got? Yeah. But it's true. Yeah, uh, no, I was not anticipating how serious this combo would be with you. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not. I can get mad. serious or funny, just like in yeah, between. Yeah, it feels like please tell a joke. Yeah. Um, how often does that happen when someone's like, "Tell a joke"? You're a comedian. Oh, it actually does happen. It's usually not somebody our age, but older people they like to do that. Oh my god, I, I I've, I'm like scarred from like meeting friends' parents, and I tell them <laughs> it's really nice to meet you. And they look at me like I'm like a, like a baboon and I'm like, is something wrong? And they're like, oh, it's okay. It's just that, you know, Sarah said you were funny. And I was like, oh, yeah. That seems terrible. I just assumed that kind of like probably would happen to you. Yeah. I mean, I would say like, I'm a pretty serious guy because you have to be so, how, what an asshole, what a serious asshole you have to be to be like so serious about joking around that you make it a profession that you're like, I want to get so good at joking around and palling around with friends that I like write it word for word and sell it as a trade. Like that's ridiculous. <laughs> right. <laughs> it implies. So yeah, I think a lot of comics are actually will absolutely bring up uh, misogyny being the root of transphobia and preventing violence two minutes into a conversation. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> uh, but it's like a hundred percent correct. For me, accessing the queer community when I was a lot younger was really about like watching movies, watching TV, um, reading about those movies and TV. Like I, I, f- I really do study it. I think it's so interesting. Our history is not taught to us. We all have to discover our history ourselves because it's not passed down um, from our parents to us, which is what makes our community so unusual. Certainly there are like immigrant families where, you know, parents and kids might have a different experience, but there's still like some teaching going on, but not for us. I mean, so few of us had like a queer parent. So most of us are like, we are spend a lot of our childhood feeling like we are the only person on the world, on the earth that feels this way. And then we get into some really awesome relationship. And so we know there's at least like one other person or however many people, um, but we don't get that like 
like this is the church and the school and the like grocery store that are a pillar of our community. This is the holiday that we celebrate because we are from this country originally before being in the US or like this is what it was like when our ancestors were here and we were the first peoples. You know, yeah. We just don't get any of that. So we've just discovered it on our own. And then we learn that there are famous LGBTQ people in history that we learn about, but we're not labeling them as queer. Oh, yeah. I'm, like, I'm thinking of like Alexander the Greats. And, that uh, is so true. Like well, Joan of Arc. Right, you know? exactly. I mean, we don't even have... that's so We aren't even allowed to, gr- to grab the people that we really could look to. We're, I mean... Not to mention that there's, like, generations of us that, like, don't exist and that we don't get to hear from because of, like, the AIDS crisis and violence and and also people being pushed into the closet and being pushed into, like, marriages that they probably didn't want to really be in with people of the opposite sex. So, you know, like, we are always rediscovering ourselves for the first time. Yeah. That's why I wanted to create the podcast that I created because I'm like, this can't, this this doesn't have to happen anymore. Like, that's why I think it's so great that you're doing what you're doing because, this like the internet the internet is our breakthrough man this is our library we can connect all the dots we don't have to yeah forget and rediscover when Edie windsor died i was like damn like i i we had I one i missed it i know? know i know i didn't get to um my wife and i made a television show called take my wife and we literally were able to make the television show because of Edie, you know and what she did and Therefore, we were able to get married in real life. And then, therefore, we were able to make a television show where the characters are married and it makes sense because marriage equality was the law of the land because Doma was overturned. And in the middle of editing our first season, Rhea and I were invited to perform on a fundraiser for Hillary Clinton and Edie Windsor was going to be one of the people that were there. And I had to stay here and finish working on the show. And I sent Rhea in my stead. And so, like, it's very funny when the person that you would like to meet and thank you can't meet them because they gave you your television show and you have to stay home (laughs) and work on it um but Rhea got to meet her and Rhea got to also write an op-ed about meeting her that ran in the New York Times I read it it was very nice I mean if you really think about 42 years they were together 42 years before they married in Canada I mean do you have like any reference point for that because I don't I mean, the closest thing would be like my sibling and parents, but that's not that kind of relationship. That's not something I chose to be in. Right. I mean, yeah, exactly. And my parents, they've been married for like 45 years and, you know, they got to be married for 45 years. So I just can't really imagine like 42 years of commitment and no um, context to give other people. Marriage isn't the end all. Many, many people will not get married, but it does in our culture have context. Like we understand what it is and we should get to choose whether or not we want to do that. Yeah. Oh, I'm so, so like knowing all that, why did you choose to? Hmm. Was it the example that your parents had? Because my parents are together and I find that I like, did you like that I asked the question and I just started answering for you? I find that my parents are together and so I hold up marriage as more of a, like a quote unquote sacred thing than all my other friends. Yeah, that might be it. I mean, um, I grew up in like the most, you know, parents, three kids. We literally lived in a town that had a milkman in the 1990s. So, I mean, I don't even know what to say about how idyllic and 
nuclear family it was. Um, so it could be that. And I also think it could be, I think Rhea and I have a little bit of a different definition of what we want marriage to be than maybe some people. Like we really are traveling this earth together and um, we have a family business and it just made sense to us to like do that thing. I think some people, it doesn't make any sense for them. Yeah. I, I also think that it is unique in Hollywood itself because to me, the hustle it takes so much time and energy and it's all my friends who are killing it currently that are single. And it's just cause I've, I'm placing this on them, but I don't think they have enough time to like date somebody seriously. So I think it's a really interesting perspective that you are, you know, getting bigger in your career and growing and you actually have like a serious partner next to you. Yeah. I'm, I don't, I totally don't know how people move here. I mean, I, I wasn't like engineering this whole thing, but I don't know how people just move here by themselves. Like cheers to all of your friends that are single and killing it and don't have time. Cause I think that, I think that uh, what I have found to be true about LA is that sometimes you just need somebody that you can look at and be like, Hey, this is nuts, right? <laughs> like this party or the fact that that person turned me down or the fact that I got that job or all of that stuff. And you kind of have to be cool and keep it together here because you don't know who you're going to work with next because this is a company town. And so your friends are lovely, um, but there's also like that thing of a little bit of self-protection needed between your friends. And um, I'm just really lucky that I have somebody that I can like be raw and ridiculous with. Are you able to, she's a stand-up comedian as well. Are you able to separate work and comedy from your life together? Or is it all the exact same thing? Yeah, we're not good at it right now, but we're getting better. I mean, we moved here and stuff went super fast. Like the number of things that I've had, we've, we've lived here for five years. And I mean, I just can't, I could never have imagined the things that have happened to us in five years and the things that we've gotten to do. Um, but something that has been taken away from us or like that we gave up was like, Oh, being newlyweds or like being, um, like softly in love with each other. You know, it's all very like, get in the car. We've got to go. So we're trying to, um, slow that down a little bit right now. Lately, you've been talking on stage about feeling your biological clock just ticking away. Oh, true. To me, that's like one of the most personal things a couple can discuss. And I'm assuming you're having those discussions with her. Is there ever a sense of like, hey, can we just figure this out before you tell an audience? You know, I don't know. I mean, not really between us, but I mean, there are certainly things I don't share on stage about our relationship. But that's kind of the thing when you are dating a stand up comic, you just. You just have to know that like they're going to talk about their life and what is unusual and I think kind of cool about Rhea and I is that you get to hear the other person's perspective. Like, you know, what could be more played out and um, what could be a bigger stand-up trope than like, oh, here's who I'm dating and like relationship stuff. But you never get to hear from the other person. I mean, that's even the joke that we're telling in the title of our of our television show, Take My Wife, is like, take my wife, please. It's somebody being a, it's Henny Youngman being like a shithead to his wife. You never, the wife never stands up in the audience and is like, um, excuse me, you are actually also very annoying because you don't ever do anything in the house. Um, 
So are you like telling the same stories on your stand-up tour? Well, I think that we're sometimes we're on stage together. On this tour, we're going to be together on stage for part of it and then separately. So not necessarily like telling the same stories, but hearing two different sides of a relationship. Pretty cool, right? It is. I think it's pretty cool. Also, it's it's radical to hear a queer woman talk about having a kid and or if you decide to like get pregnant, like to see a queer woman pregnant in the media. Dude, I know. I'm I'm <laughs> don't do not delude yourself for a moment that Rhea and I haven't like in our most disgusting and cynical moments looked at each other and been like, it would be great for the career. Like, I do not want to have a baby grow in my body, but wouldn't it be great? It would be great. People Amazing would notice. PR. They yeah. would notice. I hate asking the classic question, like, how do you juggle career and family? But I'm, I ask that because it's, it's a time issue. Yeah, it is. You know, here's the thing. A lot of dude stand-ups have, straight dude stand-ups have kids. And their kids stay home with their wives. Um, and that's what how it's Rhea's always... career just ends? No, I mean, that's just how it's always worked, right? Yeah. And, and, like, the labor force that our our mothers like thanks for doing all of that obviously that doesn't work in my relationship um yeah Rhea's career is not gonna just end and so I don't know I I know some friends who are actors do you have friends out here that have kids um yes like I have friends who are actors or musicians and their relationship with their kids just looks really different than what mine was with my parents you know there's like nannies involved or the kids go and have to be more flexible and have to be a little bit more of the parent's life, a, a part of the parent's life, as opposed to the parents just only being a part of the kid's life. I agree. And I don't think it's a bad thing. I don't either, because I was very much like when my parents had me, they sort of were like, well, you're this, our life is you now. And that's a lot of pressure. So I think the stuff that I see out here where it's a little less, the kid is the only thing that I care about. That seems kind of rad. Yeah, I, and I mean, I one of my closest friends, her mother is a Broadway producer, and I just have to think like that is an amazing example to grow up and see your mom just killing it and producing Broadway shows. So I I'm envious of that. And then there is the other end of it, which is that with queer people being out and in the world, we've kind of given straight people more leeway into what their relationships can look like. And I think that we're taking that as well in terms of uh, child rearing. Yeah, I totally agree with you. Yeah. I mean, hopefully this isn't just something that we're making up because we live in LA, but it seems to be happening in, um, you know, friends of mine who don't live here or don't do this job seem to be doing this too. I hope. Because the, you know, it all... Again, like super specific, hard line gender roles, they hurt everybody. Yes. Nobody, nobody benefits from that. Not I, not parents, not kids. Like nobody. It's just torture. Yes, absolutely. You you, you mentioned stand up comics who are men. Yeah, have you ever I, heard of them? I I I can't name any off the top of my head. <laughs> oh, I bring it up because we're talking about touring and a pre wife. Uh, I, um, I want to f- put this question on. If we can, Ooh, if we can get um, 10-year-old Cameron, uh-huh. um, bring her in now. Uh, there is like the conception I have of like male comics touring the country and getting wasted every night and fans throwing themselves at them and them being promiscuous. Sure. What was touring as a female like when you were single? Well, I mean, number one, I think like 
any woman that was listening could, could relate to this. I mean, we are not really allowed to uh, lose control and like lose our faculties because it's a safety issue. So you can't really do the thing where you're just like a total wreck after a show. Um, also, I think that different behavior is expected of women in the workplace where like a dude being a wreck sometimes can be kind of endearing like he has a sensitive side. I think for women, it's a little bit less, um, it's a little bit more uh, unnerving for people. So I will say that, those two things. Um, but like, dude, awesome also. Touring as a, I mean, and also just doing this job. I mean, my 20s were wild. I was a stand-up comic and like then a nanny during the day, half the time, partially. I had like a thousand different jobs. I was a circus ringmaster. I mean, like I had a 20s. I, I'm now very put together and I, you know, have a wife and stuff. But like there was a lot of years when I just didn't have a bed. I just slept in like a blanket pile. Yeah. That was like that life. was that was your permanent life. I mean, you don't have any money. You live in Chicago. You tour around. Yeah, that was my life. Wow, that was my impermanent life. There wasn't really anything permanent in my life. Gotcha. Is it, looking back on that now, is it just like, well, how did I do that, or did, was it just kind of fun at that time? It was very fun at the time. It really was like I turned twenty nine, and I went like, oh well, this is, this has to be over now because a thing happened to me where I like, I just, I just imagined being like 45 and then 55 and like having to go out every night and do live shows and having that be my only source of income and like not being able to afford a couch. And I started to, you know, sweat and panic. Yeah. A a lot of your contemporaries, the men who are at your level, I tend to see on TV more than you. And I bring, is that just because of, again, like you're a woman and you're like a harder type to cast as a queer woman? Nobody has ever asked me that question before. Um, Yes. That's the answer to that. I mean, this isn't just me. This is women in general. I feel like we're talking very like binary women and men, but you're asking me good questions. So I'm just going to tell you the goddamn straight up answer. I Uh, I feel like that's like a rude question, but I looking at your career, like I want to see you on more shows. Yeah, me too. I mean, I, and also to be in movies um, because I have been and should continue to be the Gina Davis Institute, Gina Davis, you know, her. she is from a league of their own. Um, she started this institute that studies gender dynamics and representation in the media. So she has this statistic about crowd scenes. Have you heard this? We actually talked about it last week because I find it so riveting and disgusting. So that 80% are men and that that's not different in animation, which means that when we draw ourselves, we still choose to show that. So like that's true in the background, but that's also true in the foreground. I mean, think about... This is not to shit on any shows. I, I used to be um, super into, I just have like fallen off. I don't watch it anymore. But like the first season of New Girl, I thought this, like, this is such a funny show. And um, still, like, I don't know if you've seen any of the promotional stuff for New Girl, if you know what I'm talking about. It was just one of those shows that like it's mainstream network sitcom. It got so much exposure and it would be like Zoe Deschanel in the middle. And then she would be surrounded by five guys And then there's like one other female character who like maybe would be in the promotional image. And she's a model. 
She's yes. like a hot, sexy woman. Yes. But I mean, even the idea that it's like new girl. I mean, first of all, she's a woman. But also like in order for this to be a marketable thing, they had to like literally put parentheses upon parentheses of men around her. Like she had to have four male roommates for her to be palatable. Like when I look at that, when you look at that, that doesn't look weird to us. You know, we see Zoe Deschanel and five dudes or four dudes or whatever. And we're like, yes, that's how the world is. There's one woman for every four men. Like, that's what it looks like on TV. Um, in real life, obviously, 51% of the population were the majority. Um, but we're not the majority on TV. Yeah. My favorite tweet, uh, and this is one I read, and I'm not quoting myself, was that Hollywood writers think that there's like one person, gay person in a scene and like we've done our job. And this person said, meanwhile, I haven't seen a straight person in months. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's when... What, what Rhea and I were trying to do on our show was to like, um, I know this is going to shock you, sometimes have scenes where like women were talking to women or like where m- multiple queer people were having like a full conversation with each other. Can you just even believe that? No. Yeah. And also they weren't like, I don't, like they weren't fucking. I mean like queer people like just... Like almost just talking to each other. That sounds groundbreaking. Well, that, but actually, it actually is. It though. is groundbreaking. <laughs> and that is why for all of the issues that I am Kate, the series had with Caitlyn Jenner, like, uh, yes, you're going to name issues and I've, I've heard them all and I agree with you. However, seeing eight trans women on screen at the same time was still mind-blowing. I think that tokenism, which is what kind of you're talking about, you know, what it denies is that... Or I will say this, what it perpetuates is that my life still kind of orbits around whatever the like straight dude is who's the lead in my life. Um, And of course, that's not true. You know, I have a lot of relationships with a lot of people, but my primary relationship is with my wife. And then around that, we know a lot of queer people. We have a queer community. There's people of color that we know, like, oh my God. Um, And I think that that's what I'm trying to do and what I'm hoping that we can do in Hollywood is, is like... Um, scoot the just scoot the camera over a little bit like so that you know we're not in modern family always as like one of many parts of a family that all are under the patriarch of Al Bundy you know what I mean like I just think we are our own thing I agree not somebody we're not a side character in somebody else's story yeah I'm such a fan of the Fosters on Freeform oh yeah it's a great show it's fantastic and the things they're doing with like their trans storylines are just outrageous and phenomenal but also on a smaller extent they had like a plumber come to the house and they cast a woman and like that in every other other show it would have been just like an overweight guy yeah well that's Peter Page's show and so like I mean he's obviously the main characters are it's a a lesbian couple but like he's a queer person so i think that one thing it's really important to bring up i mean i'm not saying peter's like making every decision but when we are in a position of power to tell our own stories then those stories get really good because they're coming from an honest place as as opposed to like a token place the emmys also kind of proved this the other night if you look at like who won it's the people that were telling stories that have been underrepresented and their their own stories as well. Yes, and it's such a slight difference that I feel like a lot of normal population maybe can't pick up on. But when it's a queer story being told by a queer writer and actor or producer, like it just rings true. You know, yeah. I can't describe why, but it does, and I can tell every time. 
Oh, I mean, I I can describe why. I think it's like the details and also having a future. I don't know. I mean, who, I don't actually know who is the, who are the writers behind Orphan Black. That's the last time I saw a show that had like a lot of mainstream straight characters that also really did queer characters. Well, so there must have been queer people in that room somewhere along the line. At some point. Um, But yeah, other than that, I mean, I think all of the stuff that I watch for its queerness has queer people making the show. So like, do it more, Hollywood. Yeah. Because <laughs> that's what I'm watching. Seriously. When, when you were growing up and looking at the queer female comics, like we have a pretty strong history of them. I'm thinking like Rosie and Wanda and Ellen, of course, and Margaret Cho. Were you aware of them and like looking at them? Well, um, when I was a kid kid, like living in my parents' house, I wasn't allowed to watch Ellen or Rosie. Yep. Did they know? Yeah. Really? Uh, not me. I mean, I don't, I, don't, I don't know if they knew. I don't know why. I don't know if it was like they knew that about them or if it was that they knew about me, but I wasn't allowed to watch Ellen or Rosie or like any gay content, seriously. Um, but then when I found it on my own um, in college and with my first girlfriend, we really loved Margaret Cho. She's actually the first comic I ever saw perform live um and then we also yeah we would like use old-fashioned netflix <laughs> to get like margaret Cho specials or ellen's specials wow delivered and watch those correct me if i'm wrong but didn't all of those women come out only after they became successful right yeah no uh maybe no no i mean i'm like going through it's all of them yeah i i, I guess my the question is like are you part of the first generation of queer women who became successful while also being out of the closet yes maybe the only other person who's may, might be my contemporary is fortune feemster i don't know if fortune has always been she's the only one i can name talking about queerness and and i mean yeah it's those women gave us this like they gave us the opportunity i also know lily tomlin has spent a, like decades working for um lgbt rights but i don't know how much of that lined up with like when was the first time she was ever on television and you knew her name versus when was the first time she ever talked about it. But either way, there was certainly a delay between when somebody thought they were marketable and when they wanted to tell you who they really were. And that just doesn't exist anymore for us. It's like how we don't have to live in West Hollywood because it's like not a safety issue where we need to be around other queer people. We can also live on the east side of Los Angeles if we want to. We have more uh, options. I, I know exactly what you mean. However, coming from the South, where walking down the street was a safety issue, it's still, I still feel like I need that where I live. Yeah, I hear you. Like, personally. I hear you. I think what I mean more is, um, well, maybe it's different for women, too. You know, like, there isn't a lesbian neighborhood. It just doesn't exist. And there's there not sort a, of is one in Chicago, Andersonville, I guess, but a lot of gay men live there, too. And we no longer have a lesbian bar. Yeah, we don't have a lesbian bar. You're welcome on Wednesday night, baby. <laughs> Good thing <Yeah>. you're married. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, maybe that's a little different because there isn't like a Mecca. Um, but I think, you know, what I'm talking about is that in comedy, you know, really there used to be like mainstream rooms and then like the gay circuit. The gay circuit was like on cruise ships or at clubs and bars in, you know, Provincetown or Palm Springs or West Hollywood. And then there were like comedy clubs. And you couldn't be out and play comedy clubs. You had to pick. And that's why, like, Ellen wasn't out. Because she wanted to be on The Tonight Show. Wow. 
Wow. When you are trying out new material, is that difficult when you're trying out new stuff that might not land because you have a reputation? Uh, yeah. I mean, it's, I don't even know that it's that. It, it can be that. Like, letting people down it can be hard. But it's also just, like, brutal to um, not do well when you're a bunch of years into something. Not that I'm, like, I'm not 25 years in, but, like, 19 years or how would I say 16 years in it it feels like I should be kind of good at this but every time you write new material you're like a baby learning to talk again and it's very terrible for a long time and so there is a feeling of like oh my god what have I ever even been good at this because that terrible time when people see you it's not this stand-up comic with like a bad like puppet abortion joke which had like a low percentage of working it's Cameron Esposito tells puppet abortion jokes (laughs) stop outing my puppet abortion well no I mean I think that You know, if you imagine a band, because, like, that's actually kind of the closest equivalence. Like, a band would never go on stage to, like, I mean, unless they're, like, a jam band and known for it, to, like, work something out. Like, they go in a studio. That's not how stand-up works. You have to go be terrible in front of people until you are better at that joke. Yeah. It's the worst. So so even today, you when you are doing material, you have practiced a thousand times are you always confident that it's gonna kill i don't know i mean i have like a do you have flow when you do something do you have that what is the thing that gives you flow do you can you think of like a thing like i also love cooking sometimes if i'm cooking i have flow and this isn't every time but i would say like 90 or 80 percent of the time um i'm just able to connect to the thing that puts you like into um like an energy that's bigger than me. It's like what athletes talk about too. It's not really, you're kind of out of your body. Um, and it really is about connecting with the room. So it's less about like killing so much as it is like just turning to the right frequency. It's like, there's this energy in the room that's happening. And if you can dial into it and direct it like a symphony, um, it's super powerful people like it like it's fun for everybody you feel this community this sense of community and then that's when you kill is when you're like dialed in like that gotcha I, I like that, that is a for- weird like easterny you know way of talking about it but it's 100 percent true no i like that because it makes it seem like you are listening and responding and not just like in the flow of like my performance that won't change based on this audience yeah that's not me at all i mean i know there are some comics who are very like uh whatever it is they do the same thing word for word every time that's never been me i'm like in i'm in it to make a thing with the audience yeah it's really the best Ooh, actually i'm getting excited about my tour just thank you for asking me this question so i can remember why i love of course stand up i have one more question before i have to let you go yeah what is it you a couple times have called yourself a guy mm. i asked because your wife is talking about of figuring out that she, they, she, I think she's okay using she pronouns. Yeah. And might be genderqueer. I wonder, are you also on that path? Are you thinking about that? No, I just have always kind of, um, I am lucky enough person to have like really evolved many, many conversations with many people on many different parts of the spectrum. I think the thing that Rhea and I have in common and why I'm happy calling myself like this little guy or whatever is that I'm, um, in the middle of the spectrum, you know, like, And I don't think, I don't know if that means, I mean, I think some people are using the word non-binary. That doesn't necessarily feel, I don't know. Sexy. Not, not, not sexy. I just, 
I guess it feels new and I already think I know who I am. So like adding words doesn't feel important to me right now, but that doesn't mean it's not important for other people. Um, I think, you know, I really see myself as a woman, but I see myself as a woman, like the haircut that I used to have is all of it where it's like long and short and weird and like rock and roll and nerdy and like the past and the future, like, you know, all those things. I don't really see myself as, um, like any one thing. And that's, uh, what's awesome is that people a lot younger than me are now coming up with like terms for that and talking about that. And I'm like, so interested to listen. Um, I don't know if I'll ever start using them for myself, but at the very least I've always been into, I've always called it gender fuckage. Like that's what I've been doing. You know, when I wear makeup, I love wearing makeup, but I always think of myself as David Bowie wearing makeup like not I don't know um who's a woman (laughs) I can't name one I can't even name a woman (laughs) like whatever Tilda Swinton and David Bowie have that makes them the exact same person like they could replace each other in a negative do you know what I mean yes like that's that's how I am like they have more to me they have more in common than um like I see them you know as the same color or whatever and it doesn't really matter what like is going on with their chromosomes or genitals or whatever it is, right? Yes, I got you. Thank you for doing this. It was so it was so nice to talk to you. Thank you. I agree. And if people want to find out more about your tour, it's CameronEsposito.com. Yes, and we are going to be in a ton of cities. And I think that the week this is coming out, we're going to be in a lot of cities in Texas. So stuff I know has been wild there, um, but we are coming to make you laugh. And as always, tweeting at me is the easiest way to connect if you want to connect or just recommend a guest. I tweet from at JeffMasters1. You can also join the LGBTQ&A newsletter at LGBTQpodcast.com. Thank you ahead of time for all of the five-star reviews on iTunes and the comments. Remember, if you want to help us out, if you want us to continue making this podcast, leaving comments on iTunes is one of the best ways you can do that. All right, I'm out of here. Special thanks to the Elon University in Los Angeles house for their studio. From Bye. executive producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, Phil Svitek, and the entire AfterBuzz TV staff, we would like to thank you for listening to the AfterBuzz TV network. To watch or listen to other After shows and post comments or questions, be sure to visit AfterBuzzTV.com. I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of AfterBuzz TV. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals. 